The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. For the last several episodes, you've been hearing me say that we are going to continue our discussion about Alexander the Great. Well, after six episodes and over a year, in this episode, we are going to complete the saga of Alexander the Great. We last left Alexander at a bit of a cliffhanger. Alexander had wanted to push further east into the Indian subcontinent. And then his always loyal men did the unimaginable. They mutinied. Now, I should start by saying that by mutiny standards, this one was extremely mild. It's probably more accurate to call it a sit-down strike. There was no attempt to wrest control of the army from Alexander. There was no attempt to depose the king. His soldiers were still very loyal to him, but they were tired. And they had been away from their home in Macedon and Greece for almost a decade, constantly moving further away, always finding new enemies to fight. Here's how it all went down. Alexander had just enjoyed another victory at the siege of the town of Sangala and had reached the river Hephaestus, also known as the Baeus. I'll let our ancient historian Arian elaborate here. The country beyond the Hephaestus was said to be prosperous and its inhabitants able farmers and brave fighters. These Indians also had many more elephants than any other of their countrymen, and what is more, elephants of surpassing size and courage. These reports stirred Alexander's desire to go farther. But the Macedonians had by now grown quite weary of their king's plans, seeing him charging from labor to labor, danger to danger. Alexander tried to give a motivating speech, talking about how the empire would stretch from boundaries never dreamed of by any conqueror or society. But unsurprisingly, Alexander talking about building his own empire did not inspire the average soldier, and we are told a soldier named Coinus came forth to speak for the soldiers and told Alexander that they were tired, they had left behind sick and wounded, and they could return to refresh the troops, then come back. Coinus made another good point. When speaking of Alexander, he correctly pointed out that the army would be lost if he were to meet with misfortune, especially as it was further from Greece than any Greek had ever been. Whatever the supporting arguments were, the message was clear to Alexander. His army was done moving further east. Alexander went into his tent for a few days and, no doubt in an attempt to save face, announced that bad omens suggested a campaign deeper into India would go poorly, and that they would return home. To be fair to Alexander, he seems to have genuinely believed the incorrect ancient Greek maps, that the end of the earth was just a thousand kilometers, about 620 miles, further east from where they were. He thought that just a little bit further, and they would have reached the end of the earth, and that fire must have burned in him to have been so close even if we know now that he would have never reached the so-called end of the earth, and even if he was trying to reach another ocean to the east, he had a long way to go. And of course, this is not to exonerate his ruthless and murderous behavior. Many of the sieges in his Indian campaign resulted in many massacres committed by Alexander's army, which no doubt would have been under his order as his army was well-disciplined, minor sit-down strike mutiny aside. Alexander split his army into three to return. About a third went north and west, back the way they came. 
Another third was dispatched by Alexander by a recently built fleet under his appointed Admiral Nearchus. Incidentally, the term they used for Admiral was Navark. The final third went with Alexander south and then west on a long trek through the Gadrosian Desert in modern-day southern Iran. The contingent that returned the way it came seems to have had the easiest time returning back, which isn't surprising because this was the territory already mapped out by Alexander's cartographers and had been nominally pacified by Alexander. There's not much more to say about this third. The Navarch Nearchus, for his part, had built his fleet around the time of the Battle of Hydaspes and took his fleet down the Indus River south to the river's mouth. In September of 325 BCE, he would leave the mouth of the Indus and head west along the coast. Nearchus faced supply issues. There just wasn't anywhere for the ancient galley coast hugging vessels to resupply. Notice that these were also to be scientific expeditions, as Alexander was still trying to have the scholars accompanying his armies to catalog all the flora and fauna they came across. Two interesting things Nearchus came across seemed to be whales, he described great towers of water blowing in the air, and sugarcane in what is now modern-day Baluchistan. He, in fact, would be the first Westerner to describe sugarcane, which he described as a reed that produces honey, although there are no bees. As fun as that sounds, there were also periodic attacks on indigenous towns, which often ended in slaughter of the locals by the Macedonians and collection of slaves. Science and research mandates or not, this was still a ruthless military endeavor. Nearchus's fleet made its way through the Persian Gulf, up the Tigris, partially through the Euphrates, and finally turned around to meet up with Alexander at the city of Susa in 324 BCE. The third of the army that included Alexander and returned through the Gadrosian Desert had the worst time returning. In fact, it came with tragic consequences. There was never enough food or water. While we don't know the exact count, we know that many died and it is likely that the majority of those who perished were Persian wives and children that had joined the army column as the Macedonians had married during this decade of conquest. They were the soldiers' new families. Ironically, even though they were constantly having issues with getting enough water, there was also a case of a flash flood wiping out part of a camp and killing many with it. Alexander himself severely limited his water out of solidarity with his men, but that was probably little solace to the many soldiers who had lost wives, children, and were probably exhausted after ten years of fighting and marching. If you look at a map and you look at the last two years of Alexander's life, it seems that he was moving through important towns in Persian and Babylonian areas, probably to reconsolidate power and remind everyone who was boss. Babylon in general was an important base to him, and the towns we see him move through in the last year of his life are Opus, Susa, Ekbatana, and eventually Babylon, although as you can see on a map, this was not in any way a straight line. Specifically, he made it to Opus before Susa, and at Opus, Alexander ran into another problem with his army, another mutiny. In fact, this was arguably a more serious mutiny than the earlier one in India. What happened is that Alexander had announced that he was discharging his oldest and injured soldiers back to Macedonia with a large portion of treasure allotted to each of them. He seems to have thought that this would placate his men, but it had the opposite effect. They had been increasingly angry at Alexander's adoption of Persian customs and dress, and they felt that this was just another way to slight the Macedonians that had gotten him to where he was, even though by now Alexander had many Persian soldiers in his army, 
who fought at least as valiantly and loyally as the Greeks and Macedonians. Alexander was less tolerant of this mutiny. He had 13 troublemakers in the crowd arrested and ordered to be executed. He then gave a speech to his soldiers that basically told them that they were a bunch of nobodies before his father Philip made them something, and even though Philip's achievements were huge, they were nothing compared to what Alexander himself had brought them through. I'm going to read that part of the speech provided us by Arian. It's a little long, but I think it does a good job of summing up what Alexander perceived that he had achieved over the years. If you want to read it in full, it's in Book 7, Chapter 9 of Arian's Anabasis of Alexander. I started from a country that could barely sustain you and immediately opened up the Hellespont for you. Although the Persians then held the mastery of the sea, I defeated in a cavalry engagement the satraps of Darius and annexed to your rule the whole of Ionia and Aeolus, both Phrygius and Lydia, and took Miletus by storm. All the rest came over to our side spontaneously, and I made them yours for you to enjoy. All the wealth of Egypt and Kyrene, which I had won without a fight, are now yours. Koila, Syria, Palestine, and Mesopotamia are your possession. Babylonia and Bactria and Elam belong to you. You own the wealth of Lydia, the treasures of Persia, the riches of India, and the outer ocean. Your satraps, your generals, your captains. As for me, what do I have left from all of these labors? Merely this purple cloak and a diadem. After this line, Alexander did a proverbial mic drop and walked off. He holed up in his tent for a few days and refused to see his companions. After a few days, he invited Persian nobles and officers into his tent and started promoting them. This terrified his soldiers from Macedon, and they came to his tent en masse and dropped their weapons in supplication. Alexander came out, told the crowd that they would all be his kinsmen now, and we are told that there was a great feast that night where Persian and Macedonian sat and ate side by side in happiness. As is always the case with Alexander, it's hard to tell how much of this story is true. Again, Arian was writing about Alexander hundreds of years after Alexander had died, but I think the point of this passage was twofold. Alexander still commanded tremendous loyalty and respect from his soldiers, and Despite difficulties, Alexander seems to have been able to keep the peace in his culturally divided army. After the mutiny, Alexander did some more quote-unquote cleaning up and had the guards of Cyrus the Great's tomb at Pasargardai executed, as they had desecrated the tomb. This shows that Alexander still had great respect for the Persians, especially the founder of the Achaemenid dynasty that he had just toppled, as Cyrus the Great was the founder of that dynasty. He made his way to Ekbatna, and that's when Alexander's greatest tragedy hit. At this point, we need to talk about Hephaestion. Hephaestion was Alexander's greatest friend, and some would say lover. We'll get to that. But it wouldn't be overstating to say that Hephaestion and Alexander were great friends, and Alexander very obviously cared about Hephaestion deeply. One of our ancient sources on Alexander, Curtius Rufus, tells us that Hephaestion was by far the dearest of all the king's friends, he had been brought up with Alexander and shared all his secrets. So who was Hephaestion? Hephaestion was the son of a Macedonian nobleman. We don't know the exact date of his birth, but there is evidence to suggest that his age was pretty close to that of Alexander's. This is notable, as Alexander's other nobleman's sons that became friends that he grew up with such as Ptolemy, 
still tended to be of an older age group. And there is evidence that Hephaestion studied in these groups with Alexander, such as references to correspondences between Aristotle and Hephaestion. While we don't have the original correspondences, the fact that they were noted down in an index suggests that they were considered important at the time. Hephaestion also might have served as a page to Alexander when Alexander was around 15. After the Battle of Issus, the captured Persian queen mother Sysigambis erroneously believed Hephaestion to be Alexander because they were dressed similarly, although according to her, Hephaestion was taller and better looking. Alexander took this in stride and responded, He too is Alexander. This amusing anecdote illustrates just how close and important Alexander considered Hephaestion. He did not seem to be one of Alexander's great generals, but did seem to have considerable administrative acumen, and Alexander trusted him with many high-level administrative duties related to his growing empire. Okay, so the question that you might have by now is, were Hephaestion and Alexander lovers? It's an interesting question, but it's also not quite the right question to ask. Now, before we go on, I want to make clear that there is no slam-dunk evidence for any position on this matter. I'm going to do my best to present what we know and how I interpret that knowledge. We don't have a clear picture on how the Greeks felt in general about homosexual relationships between consenting adults, and the fact is that many different city-states had different opinions on the matter. But we also know that it wasn't all bad. For example, at the Battle of Chironea, Philip and Alexander defeated a large army, part of which was the famed Sacred Band of Thebes. This was a group of 300 men, which was actually 150 pairs of male lovers who were considered some of the best soldiers Greece had to offer. And the idea was that they would all fight more bravely, knowing that their lover was by their side fighting for their life. Plutarch tells us that Philip wept and cursed anyone who had ever questioned their lifestyle. Philip himself had a male lover, possibly several, along with his female lovers, and while this doesn't necessarily imply that the whole of Macedonian society was accepting of homosexuality and bisexuality, it does suggest that it was not outright banned, if the king was comfortable being in a homosexual relationship openly. The problem is that none of the biographers mention explicitly homosexual behavior of Alexander, although all are very clear on how much he loved Hephaestion. So what's going on here? There's a lot of research and discussion on this subject, and I encourage my listeners to do the research and perhaps come to their own conclusions. Understand that these are the conclusions I've come up with based on my own research and intuition. The thing is that when ancient historians write something, it often feels like where there's smoke, there's fire. There are plenty of histories of kings that didn't involve deep discussion into same-sex friendships, but when one sees it especially spelled out, it's not hard to believe that there was something there. We see this with the English king Edward II and his close friend Piers Gaveston. We see it with the Prussian king Frederick the Great and his friend Hans Hermann von Cotta. These people were put in the histories for a reason, and the most likely reason is that their exclusion would create a far too big void in the life of the person whom they are biographing. What I'm getting at is that it's hard to believe that the amount of import the ancients ascribed to Hephaestion would be any less than someone who is deeply loved at a level far deeper than friendship. So this brings us back to the original but slightly flawed question. 
Were Alexander and Hephaestion lovers? The reason the question is flawed is that human beings are complicated. We know already that there were imbalances in this relationship going both ways. On Alexander's side, he was a king, and this created an obvious power imbalance, as would be the case in any kind of similar relationship with Alexander. Alexander could have Hephaestion killed, exiled, pretty much anything, should he decide that he was done with Hephaestion. On Hephaestion's side, we have numerous anecdotes from the ancients, including the earlier one with the Persian queen Sysagambus, that seem to attest to Hephaestion's beauty and good looks, something that Alexander did not quite seem to have in the same quantity. In other words, like every human relationship, the one between Alexander and Hephaestion was complicated. But I think we can say a few things about it. First, they were very likely sexually intimate. How often and at what points in their life is a different question, one we can't possibly ever answer. Second, Alexander dearly and deeply loved Hephaestion. If there was any question about the depth of that love, we only need see Alexander's response to Hephaestion's death. Hephaestion had been with Alexander in the crossing of the Gedrosian Desert. He married in Susa and accompanied Alexander to Ekbatna. In Ekbatna, he seems to have gotten sick with fever for seven days and might have been improving, but ate a large breakfast against his doctor's orders. He was dead within hours. We aren't sure what killed him, and theories have ranged from typhoid to poison, but what we do know for certain is that Alexander was utterly crushed. Plutarch tells us that Alexander's grief was uncontrollable. Alexander refused to eat for three days. He had the doctor who was healing Hephaestion killed for lack of doing his duty and a shrine to the god of healing, Asclepius, torn down. He sent messengers to the oracle at Siwa, and through them, Hephaestion was named a divine hero. Shrines were erected, and the funeral was spectacularly expensive. 12,000 talents, which in modern-day American dollars would be a $240 million funeral. So whatever the details of Alexander and Hephaestion's relationship were, now lost to time, it's clear that Hephaestion's death in October 324 BCE deeply affected Alexander. After Hephaestion's funerary and memorial arrangements were complete, Alexander made his way to Babylon. In late May 323 BCE, he developed either a fever or stomach pains. I'll get to that in a second. And on either June 10th or 11th, 323 BCE, at the age of 33, Alexander the Great, a man who had never been defeated in battle, who had traveled further than anyone in his society could have imagined and came back, died. Unfortunately, we will never know for certain what he died of. Different sources give different accounts, and we can't be certain that those accounts would know all the details anyway. Historians have suggested multiple possibilities, including assassination by poisoning, you may remember from earlier in the series that Macedonian politics tended to be very bloody and several Macedonian kings had been assassinated. Disease such as typhus or malaria. Alexander had passed through swamps when entering Babylon, and either of these diseases could have been contracted on the way and done him in. Heartbreak at the death of Hephaestion. Alexander never truly recovered after Hephaestion's death, and Alexander himself would not live another year. Grave injuries sustained over many battles also could have finally caught up with him. Could have been a combination of any of those, too. So like I said, we'll never truly know what Alexander died of, 
but the fact is that he was dead and there was a very large empire he had left behind. Furthermore, his wife Roxana was pregnant with his son Alexander IV, but of course at this point no one knew that his child would be a son for certain, and Roxana herself was not in a politically advantageous place to do much with this. I'll cut to the chase. Alexander's empire almost immediately broke up. There was nobody with Alexander's skill, charisma, and political capital to take the single place of emperor of his new empire. His generals would all go their separate ways and take their own piece of the larger empire, although this was far from settled quickly. The wars of the Diodici, Greek for successors, would go on for decades, were very complicated and very messy, with many armies and areas switching hands before settling into the dynasties that would end up lasting for the next couple centuries. Even Alexander's dynasty didn't last. None of these areas would actually end up in the hands of anyone from Alexander's dynasty. Roxana and Alexander IV would eventually be killed. Alexander's mother Olympias outlived Alexander, and after some attempts to take over the Greek and Macedonian areas, she was caught and executed. Probably the biggest winners were Alexander's general Ptolemy, who grabbed Alexander's body and took off to Egypt to rule over Egypt and adjoining areas, and Seleucus, whose dynasty ended up covering large areas stretching from Persia to the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Otherwise, really, no one was the winner here. Alexander's legacy would be quickly torn apart by the Diodici. The few Diodici who did manage to get a piece of the larger pie that Alexander had created never truly achieved the kind of kingship that they had hoped for, and often had to fight for it. Of course, the people under them suffered as a result. The Diodici kept Greek leadership over people of various cultures and didn't share that power. Infrastructure broke down as villages would be at the mercy of whatever the local aristocrat was willing to donate to the cause. And of course, both of these dynasties, as well as Greece and Macedonia, would eventually fall to the Romans. As we wrap up this seven-part series about Alexander the Great, I want to take a moment to reflect on it. What was the point of all this? Why should we even care about Alexander? The first most obvious answer, of course, is simply that history is interesting. And learning about our past gives us insight into our own present. Surveys have been done on college campuses, and Alexander usually shows up as the top secular person people can name from history. In other words, Alexander the Great is someone that many, many people have heard of, but know few details about. And throughout history, his name has been invoked by people hoping to mimic his achievements. But as we've seen, even those achievements were fleeting and any legacy he set up was taken over by others. His disruptions ultimately caused more harm than good. He murdered thousands of Greek mercenaries at the Battle of the Granicus just to prove a point. He took slaves, had civilians killed when cities held out against him, and he slaughtered his friend Clytus in a drunken fit of anger. He was not a good guy. It's easy to look at his undefeated battle record and brilliant military mind and forget the darker part of Alexander's story. So maybe the point is that history is interesting, but it's also messy and can get pretty ugly. So we finally say goodbye to Alexander. I hope this series was as interesting to listen to as it was for me to write and record. Thank you for listening and see you next time when we start a brand new topic on the stream of time. <laughs>